pray. Yeah. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, thank you um, for this weekend. It's been so much fun. Um, and it's been a good, good weekend. And the weather was, oh my gosh, so awesome. It was lovely. Uh, and we thank you for that. Jesus, we come here today uh, to celebrate you. We come here today to learn about you. And we come here today um, to look for healing. And so because of that, I acknowledge that all of us are in different places um, some of us are not even sure we believe in you. Some of us don't even understand why we're here. Some of us um, are really excited to be here. We're all over the map, but we're here, and we ask that you would honor that, that you would honor us being here, and so that as we seek you, you would find us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the power to believe what is true and to cast out what is false and to not hold against one another the way things are said in particular, but that we would look for words of truth and of life in one another's conversations, and ask that in your holy name. Amen. Well, we are in a series that we are calling Prophet, Priest, and King, and we are actually talking about Jesus as the prophet, Jesus as the priest, and Jesus as the king. And actually, next week, we are going to talk about a little bit more ex in ex expanded sense, the kingdom of God itself, and how we function in that. And so... Um, actually, I think in the morning, Sue and I are going to be talking, so you get to hear from my wife. So that'll be fun, yay. Um, and then after that, there's one more kind of conversation about the kingdom of God. But today we're talking about Jesus as the king, and I'm going to do th something a little uh, different. If you've followed the last two uh, messages, you've noticed that I've followed a pattern and I had wonderful slides and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that today. We're just going to jump into the gospel of John and we're going to talk about Jesus as king and we're going to make an assumption. Um, we're going to join the New Testament writers with an understanding that Jesus set himself up as a king and that he was the king. And in particular, if you look at Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, and the other writers, they refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ means Messiah, means anointed one. But the best way to translate it, if you go along with, let's say, N.T. Wright, who, when he translated the New Testament, he just removed Christ and put king there, because that's what the New Testament writers are trying to say, that Jesus was the king. So, and they kind of put two parentheses on it. So you got Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, it's King Jesus King. That's kind of how it's established. So we're going to look at a, a, a decisive act of a king in the New Testament where Jesus walks into or rides into Jerusalem. So we're going to start in John chapter 12. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Don, John chapter 12. Um, and let me just set the stage for you before we begin to read the text. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, So he has told him to get up and come out of the grave. Now, you got to imagine that the way people would, like if I said, if I raised one of you from the dead, like one of you died and then I raised you from the dead, the next service, this service would be packed out. Right, if there was, it got around Tucson, that there was a guy who literally raised people from the dead, then people would be showing up. The news 
would be out there. They'd want to see me, right? Because I would be, in some sense, a Marvel superhero. Like, I would have some of that going on, right? Well, it's not any different in the first century. People are super excited. Now, there's, you'll notice in verse 12, I'll read it to you. It says, the next day, so this is the next day after he raises Lazarus, a great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So he doesn't even, it's not only that he raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead when there is a ton of people in town. So we know from Josephus, five years after this moment in time, he's talking about Passover and how many people come to Jerusalem. And I'm really not sure how he estimates this because he says that there's like 2.5 million people or some crazy thing like that he estimates because of the amount of lambs killed or whatever. Usually Jerusalem has about 40,000 in it at this time. So when Jesus... I don't know if that number is correct, but what we do know is there was a lot of people for the Passover feast because everybody's got to come to Jerusalem. So they're packed into the city, packed into all around the city, and somebody raised somebody from the dead. So things are kind of getting excited and a little bit intense. And so it says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that Lazarus was with... Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the Pharisees, who are now at mode of we've got to get rid of Jesus, are super frustrated with this process because you know, it, it's that moment in the Marvel movie when, when the villain decides everything has to be pushed against the hero um, because he's, he's doing things that are not, I mean, he's, he's, he's winning battles he shouldn't win. And so they're, they're really frustrated. So what happens, so there's a couple of things I want you to notice. Number one, we already pointed out there's a lot of, there's a crowd there. Number two, though, palm branches. I want you to know what palm branches are about because I grew up in the church, so I'm a church kid. And I grew up not knowing what palm branches were. Nobody explained why we're waving palm branches. It was just a fun thing we did in Sunday school and one week before Easter. Like that was the kind of thing. But why do we have palm branches? Well, here's the thing about palm branches. Palm branches are the Jewish flag. Okay, this is their flag. So for the 300 years before Jesus, this was their symbol of rebellion and victory when they pushed out the Syrians finally out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. So when they're coming and waving these, it's a nationalistic thing. So it's if, you know, the president came and you're, you know, pro the president, so you come waving the flag in a parade, right? So this is why in 70 AD, the Romans minted a coin when they destroyed Jerusalem of a Roman soldier cutting down a palm tree or a palm branch because they wanted to say, we took out Israel, like, and this is how, you know, in the, you know, during the first century, this is how people dealt with victory. If you win, you make a coin, and you show on the coin your victory and how you won, right? So before this, there were a bunch of coins going around with palm branches on them, 
Right, so the Romans put out a coin. So already the people, this big crowd, think he's king. And now they're saying this thing, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add this, because this comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king of Israel. They see, so this is during, during the uh, Passover, they sing a thing called the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And this is a little passage out of Psalm 118 that's very what you would call messianic. So they, at this moment, are waving the palm branches. Jesus is riding in, and they're singing a revolutionary song, and they're saying, here comes our king. Here comes the moment. Now, I want to change this picture for you, because I think this is important when we talk about Jesus as our king. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, and this comes out of Zechariah, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Okay. Some, most of you have at least seen a donkey, right? A donkey is kind of like a short horse, right? And so he's riding on a donkey. Middle Eastern donkeys are short donkeys. Okay, so they're not the size of the donkey that you have seen. So when you have the picture of Jesus riding in to the city, I don't want you to have a picture of him actually being able to get up on the donkey. I want you to have a picture of, you know, those little motorbikes that have been popular recently when you see adults riding on them. And so it's like a big, gigantic man riding like this. Well, this is how Jesus is riding into the city, like this, on a donkey. Right? He, and, and most likely the donkey's mother is walking in front of the donkey. Okay, so this, this is not a picture of a mighty marching in king. Now, what's happening here, I mean, Jesus is, is really interesting the way he does things. So earlier, when, when the Israel kicked out the uh, Syrians, there, there were these people called the Maccabeans. And so these two kings rode in to Jerusalem on their horses when they kicked out the Syrians, when they won. Okay? And they rode in on horses. And horses mean that you are a warrior. If you ride in on a donkey, you are saying, I'm riding in peace. Right? I am not at war with anybody. So this is a really interesting picture, is that everybody else is waving the palm branches, singing Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And in other, story, other narratives of this, people are laying down their cloaks, because that's what you do for a king. You don't want to get him to get his feet muddy you know, as they drag along with the donkey. So they're laying down the, the cloak. So everybody else is saying, save us, save us, you're our king. And Jesus is saying, I'm not at war with your rulers. I'm not at war. We're not, I'm, not going, I'm not at war with humans. This is not a conflict. This is not a battle, right? This is not what you think it is. This is not what you think it is. So people proclaim him as a king. So here's a couple of things that you need to be king if you're in the Old Testament way of things. Number one, to be a king, you have to be, under, you have to be appointed by God. So something has to happen um, to you where you are appointed by God. So usually a prophet or a priest has to anoint you and say, you're the king, right? They pour oil on you, or it's kind of like when you see somebody knighted, they put the sword, you know, you're the knight. Something where other people appoint you to do something. The other thing, though, that a king does is the king in the Old Testament is the agent of God. So he's going to offer God's law, God's ethic, all that kind of stuff. And the third thing a king does is that he protects. 
Okay? So I want you to see how this stuff sort of pops up in the rest of this narrative. So Jesus marches into the city. And then every, and everybody's excited, and it's, it, it looks like revolution is about to start. And it says, now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. This is interesting. This is the way John writes things. None of this really matters. They came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Like, John is like, yeah, I remember that whole process, that he talked to him, he talked to him, and then they went over to Jesus. Like, it doesn't matter to us. Like, they just, but John is trying to say, like, this all happened. This was, the Greeks wanted to know about Jesus. I remember this moment. And now Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and whatever I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So it, it's really interesting that Jesus steps into Jerusalem. Everybody thinks he's the king who's going to deliver them in the revolution. And he walks in and says, no, no, I'm at peace with all of you. Like, I'm about peace. I'm not at war with humans. And then he says, here's the ethic of the kingdom. And this is something you can't miss. The king props up, explains, develops, creates space for the ethic of the kingdom. The ethic of the kingdom is those of who love their life will lose it. That's the idea. If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate your life, and this doesn't mean I, a contemptuous thing, if your life is this, not the center, then you will find eternal life. He also explains that the ethic of the kingdom is if he lays his life down, all of us will benefit. But if he holds on to his life, we will not. So this is so the, the ethic of the kingdom all of a sudden is a downward mobile kingdom, not an upwardly mobile kingdom, right? So the ethic of the kingdom becomes us losing our life. And if we do that, we find relationship with the Father and we find ourselves next to Jesus. The more we're willing to let go of our life, the more we find ourselves next to Jesus, the more we find ourselves next to the Father. We're in the kingdom. Right, so that's, that's ethic number one. But then he goes on to say, but now here's where the war is. What does he say? Judgment has come. And it's what the, I love the phrase. He says, now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
So he says, I'm at peace with you guys. I'm about to bring peace. I'm not at war with you. Who am I at war with? I am at war with the prince of this world. I'm at war with a different cosmic place than humans. So I have to come to earth to, ma- to act in a revolutionary way. But that's, that this death that I'm about to encounter is not about war with humans. It's about war with the prince of this world. So eventually, Jesus finds himself captured by the Romans and in front of Pilate. And Pilate and him get in an interesting conversation, but eventually Pilate wants to know, who are you really king of? Where's your kingdom? And Jesus, in verse eight, or chapter 18, verse 36 of John says, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another, another place. So he's saying, where I rule is in a cosmic world. Where I am at battle is in a cosmic world. And the thing that I'm going to fight is a thing that is destructive to you and prevents peace. And that is death and judgment. That's the thing that causes pain and suffering is death and judgment. And so I'm going to deal with that. Now, we'll get back to the story of Jesus marching in in a second. But I want to go back to the statement that we've been kind of using for the last three weeks from Scott McKnight, a theologian who says, if Jesus was prophetic, then his church is prophetic. If Jesus was a prophet, then his disciples was a prophet. And then we added to it, if Jesus is priestly, his church is priestly. If Jesus was a priest, then his church is a priest. Now here's the uncomfortable and awkward one, is that if Jesus is kingly, then his church is kingly. And if Jesus is a king, then his disciples are kings, are rulers, right? So it's easy for us to all conceptualize that maybe we, as following Jesus, can have a prophetic voice, right? We talked about prophets being people who speak for the heart of God, who speak with authority, and they reframe truth. And it may be easy for us to say, yeah, I can be a priest in the way of Jesus, right? I can... I have an identity as a priest because it's given to me. I'm willing to get into people's mess. It's messy. Priests get into mess. And I'm willing to offer some kind of sacrifice for people. I'm willing to offer Jesus to them. That's easy. But the concept of you in stepping into discipleship, meaning you are a king in this world, is not a concept that we talk a lot about. But if you remember last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, It's not that we are a priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood. We are a kingly priesthood, okay? So what does it look like then for you and I to be kings in this world? How do we do that? So last week, and and I'm I'm sorry if you weren't here the last few weeks, because I'm kind of banking on all of my slides and all that kind of stuff. It's been a busy week, but Last week, I showed you a picture of heaven and earth going together, right? And I talked to you about as a priest, when you step into your classroom, when you step into this world, you, because you have the Spirit of God, bring heaven and earth into whatever position you're at, right? Wherever you are, you are an agent of, the, of God, and the Spirit of God is in you and on you. So when you walk into this place, heaven and earth are in that place, right? You're in that existence. Well, I want to expand that because wherever you walk and wherever you go and wherever you step 
It's not only that you bring the presence of God through the Spirit of God, but you bring the authority and rule of God into those spaces. So how do you do that? How do I do that? How do we get to that place? How do we follow Jesus in his footsteps? Well, I want to, to look at Revelation for you for a moment and, and just reflect on how we might be people who step into the world with authority and imitate Jesus as a king and offer his rule to the world. To do that, though, we need to come to a conclusion that's very difficult for all of us and, and is what kind of makes it difficult for us to actually bring God's reign into place, into places. And so I want to start just with what Jesus says about himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus says that he's the beginning, that, uh, you know, the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek language, and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek language. Now here, here's the problem. Is that it, what's difficult, what make, the reason it's difficult for me to bring God's authority into the world is because I would rather bring my authority into the world, right? Th- this is important because I am the Alpha and my Omega. I am my beginning and my end, right? And so for me to bring God's reign into the world, I must have God as my alpha, as my beginning and as my source. I must reorient myself there. But it's not just that I must reorient myself there in the beginning. I need to reorient myself there in the end. So when Jesus says I'm alpha and omega, what he's saying is all life and all things begin with me and they actually flow back into me, right? So everything in creation and in the world and you and me, they are all come from Jesus and end in Jesus, right? When I walk into, so what, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, before we get to that, I want you just to listen to what John, like John has this vision of Jesus and it, he's offering this vision right before one of the most horrific persecutions of the church ever. Right now, the church is being horribly persecuted. This persecution is worse, partly because it's by a world power and it's systematic. What's about to happen, as John is writing, because this is about 100 AD when he's writing Revelation, what's about to happen is that Christians are going to be torn limb from limb. They're going to be in horses. They're going to tie them up and just rip them apart. They're going to be thrown to lions. They're going to have their heads drilled open and hot metal poured into their brains. Like they're about to enter something and we know from the church fathers that this passage right here, this vision that John has from the beginning of Revelation is what helps them make it through that. Which is where it helps them bring God's rule. And in fact, at times where the church fathers had to put out edicts requesting that people stop volunteering to be martyrs. Because this passage was so inspiring to them that they wanted to be a witness through our gruesome death in order to witness God. And this is the passage. So I'm going to, Jesus appears to John. He says you need to write some, some letters. And then I'm, we're going to pick up on verse 12. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe 
reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in in brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. And this is, the, this is what people rested their courage on. It says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. So, Jesus walking or riding, maybe half walking, half riding, into Jerusalem, saying, I'm, I'm not at war. Jesus torn to pieces on the cross saying, I'm not in conflict with you. Like where I'm at conflict is with death and Hades hell, with, with judgment and destruction. So this picture that John sees as suffering is about to enter in at a horrific level is a victorious Jesus with swords coming out of his mouth with stars and lampstands for the churches in his hands like and a God saying in all his glory I was dead but I am now alive and you don't have to worry about dying you don't have to worry about being judged. You don't have to worry about holding on to your life and getting yours. Right? So, how then do you and I act as rulers in this world? Well, there is tons and tons of teachings of Jesus. But the first thing is, is that you and I have just like God, or just like Jesus, because God spoke over him and said, I'm going to be glorified. He, he gave a testimony to Jesus. You and I have a testimony. And that testimony is that you have been marked by the Spirit of God. So when you step in to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, Ephesians tells us you have been marked as a promise. So anywhere you go, you have a stamp on you. You have an invisible tattoo, basically, that says, I, this person, is a king in the kingdom. Wherever you go, the spiritual world knows that. It's an invisible spiritual tattoo. Wherever you walk, the darkness sees you and knows that it has no hold and that you actually have the power. That's important. Number two is that a king is an agent of God. You, as a king, are an agent of God, and your job is to demonstrate the ethic of the kingdom. And the ethic of the kingdom, first, is to say, Jesus is my Alpha and Omega, so I'm going to pour out my life. I'm going to let go. So that is a big idea, but it also works very simply in your relationships. That you, in your marriage, and in your friendships, and in where you go, go to school, to where you teach, all of these different areas, when you step in, the way that you bring the ethic to the kingdom is saying, okay, I'm going to be poured out. I'm going to pour out my life for you. 
I'm gonna, because I'm okay. I don't need you to recognize me. I don't need you to honor the things that I've given you. I don't need you to do those things because I have them in the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he's victorious over death. There's nothing you can do to me. And so I will pour myself out so that you will know what Jesus tastes like. That's how you bring the rule of God. By demonstrating the ethic, by pouring out your life. But there's a third one, and this is where you take authority, because rulers take authority, right? This is when you walk into a room and you bring heaven and earth, you bring that tattoo, you bring the Spirit of God, but you bring the Spirit of God with authority, but you come in on the donkey, but you speak with authority. And the authority is not against people, not against your husband, not against your wife, not against your kids, not against your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with. It's against evil. And a lot of times you and I forget that evil, just because Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands, that evil doesn't want to squash things. That evil doesn't want to push in. Right? And even, even though we're, you know, here at the village we talk, we're honest. Like, oh, we talk about our pain and suffering. Guys, we're, we're Americans. We, we struggle to understand true suffering. But it's present and evil is pushing in all around you. And it wants to devour you, and it wants to crush you. And it doesn't, doesn't like things that happened like last night at the big vow renewal. It doesn't like people speaking up for God. It doesn't like it, because healing comes when people pour out their lives. Right? But we have to speak. So I would encourage you, as the way you bring the rule of God into a place, is that when you step into a room, you would say, evil, you don't have a place here. Satan, you don't have a place here. Darkness, you don't have a place here. Lies, you don't have a place here. And you know how I'm going to prove that? I'm going to pour my life out for these people. Right? It's not enough to just say it. It has to be publicly demonstrated. Jesus didn't go somehow cosmically and fix the prince of this, this world. He came and had to be a fleshly human and die on a cross to make that victory happen. And you and I have to physically demonstrate that right we have to do that so jesus is king he invites you to offer that rule but that rule is not you taking it and making you the center of things i think it's key as we step into a world and and you know i think as we step into the world in the next 30 40 50 years you who are younger than me are going to face things I never faced. And you're going to face some difficult things that I haven't had to face. And I would, this is your time to begin to decide. It's all, all our time that Jesus is our Alpha and Omega as we step into actually standing up for the King and pouring out our life. Because that's what, what this faith is about. Because when we do that, we find ourselves closer to God and closer to the Father. And we get to taste the glory of God. And that's powerful, I think. I'm excited about that. Anybody have any questions or thoughts? Want me to clarify anything? Ideas, or we can just pray. Yes, in the back. Thanks. <laughs> You're an expert on donkeys. Um, you know, all the judges rode donkeys, too, yes. in the Old Testament. Now, all those judges, were they all like kind of walking on top of a donkey that was walking underneath them too and like 
what about David's mighty men? They all rode donkeys. Like, were all of his mightiest warriors all like, you know, kid biking it around on midget donkeys? Or because that seems weird, doesn't it? You know, a mighty warrior on a tiny yeah. animal that should be that you know, I, being I can't carried sp- by. I can't warrior, speak you know? to to uh, that far back. I can speak to the last two thousand years and we what we know about the genetics of donkeys then. Okay, because I, I mean, I was a picture like. David's mighty warriors were on like mammoth jack donkeys that were yeah. like, the size of large mules or something, you know. <laughs> mammoth you know? jack donkeys, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that, that was beautiful. Any other questions? Somebody? Um, in in David and Solomon's time, there were hardly any horses right. in Israel, so. Uh, you know, the king had a horse, but that was basically it. Anybody else? Anyone else have questions about donkeys? <laughs> Which is great. Hey, not donkey related. Um, <clears throat> I just was wondering if you, just kind of the three points as they're just like simmering down as you're inviting us to really decide that this is what we're about. I'm just wondering if you can just summarize again those the last three points for us to just kind of ponder this week of. Sure. So, so I think point number one is that an Old Testament king ha- was appointed by God. They saw it that way, but they had to be anointed by a priest or a prophet. And I would argue that uh, the parallel for Jesus is that both in his baptism, which I didn't touch this time, and in this moment when he's making this very revolutionary move, God speaks over him and says, this is my son. Um, so, but then you and I, my illustration of that is you and I are tattooed with the spirit of God. So we have an anointing. We have a, a marking as a king. So that's, that's point number one, that we can hold tightly onto that, that the world, the spiritual world, the unseen world sees that. Um, the second, the second idea is that we, um, the, the, the role of an Old Testament king is to pr- promote the law and the ethic of God and to create an environment for that. Jesus says the way that we do that in his kingdom is by laying our life down. That he lays his life down for us. This is how we know what love is. We lay our life down. The invitation then to, in promoting the ethic of God and actually speaking to the unseen world is by us sacrificing our own wants and needs for others by pouring ourselves out because we're rooted, right? We're rooted in the alpha and omega. So we don't need, we don't need to be the center. We can pour out ourselves. And then the third one is protection. And so the king offers protection. And in that, it's protection both in judgment and in righteousness. So it's not just protection from people outside, but it's also to protect the poor and to protect the, the orphan. Like you set up, you're, you're making sure that justice happens. For us to do that, and the way, that, the way that Jesus does that is that he goes and he dies on the cross and makes a definitive victory against the prince of darkness and takes the keys of death and of Hades. Right? He holds these now in his possession. And so you and I offer that by stepping into the world, into places, and speaking it. He's saying, darkness, you don't have a place in my family. You don't have a place in my husband. You don't have a place in my kids. You don't have a place where I go to work. Right? But we say, and here's the proof of it. I'm rooted to Jesus, and so I'm going to sacrifice myself for these people. It's not my agenda. It's going to be Jesus' agenda. 
The benefit of that, Jesus says, is that we find ourselves close to God and close to him in his mission. Is that good enough summary? All right, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness um, in us, and, and thank you for transforming and healing us. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to be patient with one another and give us grace. I ask that in your holy name. Amen.